Thank you, John. Thank you, Eliezer. All right, uh, this morning, uh, we're still in Mark's gospel, and uh, I wanna start with something that's not a part of Mark's gospel for a moment. Uh, nothing is certain in life but death and taxes. Anyone know who first said that, whose words those originally were? Benjamin Franklin, Ben Franklin, exactly. And uh, those were written by him in a letter to a guy named Jean-Baptiste Leroy in 1789, personal letter that ended up sort of going public. Here's the full quote there from Abraham, uh, from uh, Benjamin Franklin. Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency, but in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And so since the very beginning of our republic, since the founding years of the United States, taxes have been a part of the equation. Taxes have been a part of the picture. No one has ever loved taxes. I hear in politics sometimes today that so-and-so has never seen a uh, tax that she doesn't love. Uh, you've heard that, or that he doesn't love. And no commentary on that, but in our culture, there's a variety of perspectives on taxes and levels of taxes and types of taxes uh, but I think we can agree that no one really loves taxes as a whole. Think about this. We all have April 15th on our calendars, but it's not a holiday. <laughs> right? No one celebrates tax day. It's not very popular. There are no parties on tax day. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Hallmark has done nothing with tax day. Right? Costco and Home Depot uh, try to monetize everything. Costco, Home Depot, they got their stuff out for Christmas in early September. They got nothing, nothing at all for tax day. Target, Amazon, again, uh, so sad, haven't figured out a way to monetize that. There are no special costumes for tax day. There are no special foods for tax day. It's really sad. Nobody loves it. And it's always been that way. We've always had this, this, this sort of disposition toward taxes, but especially when the taxes are imposed by people outside of ourselves, people uh, that we don't have input about those taxes. That was the case uh, in the early days of the colonies in their relationship with Great Britain, of course. It was the same among the Jewish people in Jesus' day, just like us and all people they were not fans of taxes, and they were especially not fans of taxes imposed by the occupying Roman government. Those taxes were especially embittering to them, oppressive, and distasteful, which we'll see in a moment as we get into Mark's gospel this morning. But first, pray with me. God, help us to look on the things of this world, the things of common life, the things uh, that are a part of our everyday lives from your perspective. Uh, help us to see your presence and your reality and your kingdom and your will in all of the things and facets of our lives. The areas, uh, the places, the pieces, the relationships. Give us ears that are good to hear your word, eyes that are good to see, hearts that are fertile and receptive soil to the things you would have us know and become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word in any way, may they immediately be forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we pick up Mark's gospel again in Jerusalem and in the courts of the great temple uh, to the one true God. Rabbi Jesus is again teaching as Mark structures his narrative. Most of Jesus' public ministry happens in Galilee where Jesus is from and then on the edges in the perimeter of Galilee going into non-Jewish areas. Then toward the latter part of Jesus' public ministry, he heads south to Judea, the area of Judea, not going straight down through Samaria, but kind of circumventing that and taking the long route through Perea. Uh, now Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is again teaching in the temple courts. Chapter 11 uh, is Jesus' grand or triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're going to catch up with that on what we celebrate normally on Palm Sunday later. But this uh, collection of things in chapter 11 and 12 really various teachings of Jesus happen in that context, the context of the temple courtyard. That's where we are this morning. Uh, at first, it's uh, the chief priests who come after Jesus in that context, then the, the teachers of the Jewish law who pepper Jesus with questions, usually trying to trick, trap, and corner him make him look bad, dumb, foolish, unattractive, even criminal. Then the elders join the assault on Jesus in the passage after the one we're reading. It will be the Sadducees. Sometimes love brings former adversaries together. Sometimes hate or derision for others brings some together. The latter is the case uh, we see in chapters 11 and 12 of Mark's gospel. So listen closely. Uh, chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, this is God's word. Later they, and then they is the chief priests and the teachers of the law, in other words, the scribes, uh, and the elders all together, uh, ganging up on Jesus. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch Jesus in his words. And this word catch occurs only here in Greek in the New Testament, and it means to violently pursue, to violently pursue. These, uh, these are not friends of Jesus. Uh, in all of the New Testament, we don't see anything else about Herodians either, except right here in chapter 3 in Mark's gospel and the parallel verse in uh, Matthew's gospel. And so what we know about the Herodians is limited, but it seems that they work for or are in bed with the Herod family and so have something to be gained by anything that is beneficial to the Herods, to those kings, to the Jewish kings who have gotten in bed with the Roman government. So verse 14, they, the Pharisees, who were known for taking the Jewish scriptures very seriously, and the Herodians, they came to Jesus and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So they're buttering up Jesus. They're trying to play Jesus with flattery. Is it right, Jesus, to pay the imperial tax, as it was known, to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? All of the challenges that Jesus gets in the temple courtyard are specifically about Jewish matters more than they are necessarily modern day things for us, but they all pertain to Jewish concerns. And this one was in their time particularly vexing. Is it right to pay the imperial tax or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? That was the big question. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy or their lack of integrity why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and Jesus asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. 
And they were amazed at Jesus. And this is the 10th time, already nine times in Mark's gospel. Various people from the disciples to the crowds to others have been amazed at Jesus. This is number 10. Fast forward a few more chapters to uh, 15 in Mark's gospel. And even Pontius Pilate will be amazed at Jesus. They are amazed at his unswayableness. They are amazed at Jesus' integrity. They are amazed at Jesus' inability to be cornered or played or tricked. They are amazed at Jesus' brilliance. And again, we can't think of Jesus as just a stained glass figure who floated through life with occasionally a good word to say or a person to heal. But he was, among other things, brilliant. So... The scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law think they have Jesus checkmated. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? There were a lot of state taxes in that day. The Roman government truly did love to tax people and especially Jews. It's how they funded their empire. It's how they funded their roads, their infrastructure, their governing institutions or their controlling institutions. And the Jewish people despised those taxes and especially the imperial tax also known as a poll tax, though it had nothing to do with voting. It just had to do with living in the Roman Empire. And everyone paid the same amount for this tax, one denarius. And so in some ways, some thought of it as a regressive tax against the poor because the poor had to pay just as much as the rich, even though they had less. And many of the Jewish people were poor. Should we pay this tax to Caesar or not, Jesus? What do you say? If Jesus answered their question with yes, he would offend the crowds that followed him. The poll tax or head tax, as the Greek text says, the census tax, had been imposed by the Roman government after the the deposition of Archelaus in AD 6. The extreme nationalists or zealots led by Judas the Galilean, a man named Judas the Galilean, had refused to pay it, had instigated a short-lived Revolt against Rome because of it, the poll tax or the head tax remained extremely unpopular among the common people, fostering greater pushback against the Roman authorities than any other tax. If Jesus answered yes about paying this tax, he would immediately ostracize the matches, the ma- masses. However, if Jesus answered their question about paying the taxes to Caesar with a no, he would also get into hot water because the Herodians, as I said earlier, didn't resist paying this tax because they had something to benefit from it. Their liveliness was attached to it. The Pharisees also did not resist this tax because they said we're more interested in other things that had to do with the scriptures and the law and the religious system, and they just kind of went along with it to keep the peace. And so Jesus may seem stuck between a rock and a hard place, but there's more, and it's significant. The silver denarius used to pay this tax bore the image of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, as Jesus implies earlier. His face, his countenance, his image is stamped on it. He's the second of the Roman emperors reigning from the year 14 to 37. And on this coin was not only an image of Tiberius Caesar, but also an inscription that basically accorded him divine honor as became the custom with the emperors, the Caesars. The world treated them at their insistence as if they were borderline or even divine, which certainly would have been problematic for faithful Jews and especially for the Pharisees. And Jesus asked that someone produce one of these denarius coins, and interestingly, one of the Pharisees 
or Herodians reaches into his pocket and has one. Maybe they all had some. Maybe they all had many of them. We don't really know, but it wasn't too hard in that little circle to find one, which in itself should have been problematic because Jewish law forbade the bringing of any effigy or likeness of any other person, and especially one who claimed divinity into the sacred space of their temple to the one true God. And now all of a sudden, the ones who are trying to catch Jesus in some sort of inconsistency are beginning to look a little like hypocrites themselves. They whom themselves are trying to trap Jesus between the supposedly divine emperor and his empire on the one hand and the masses of common people on the other are now beginning to get squeezed by the brilliant Jesus. And Jesus asked them, whose image is on this? Whose inscription? Just like coins and currency today, throughout history it's been the same. What we have on our coins, what we have on our currency says something about us. It says something about our culture. It says something about our values. It says something about, in some cases, the propaganda or the message or the ideology which we have, which we believe in, which we stand for, which we want to promote. In God we trust. E pluribus unum. The images of presidents and institutions on all of our currency today in the United States. It was the same with the denarius. On one side, his image. On the other side, a picture of a woman who was called the great high priest could have been Tiberius's mother, could have been someone else. Either way, it has an image of Tiberius attributing to him divinity and a high priest, a woman on the other side of that particular coin. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Caesar's image is on the denarius, so give it to him. And what is the image of God on? What is the image of God on? Rewind to chapter 1 of Genesis to the very first chapter of the Scriptures to verse 27, which records God creating, and particularly the verse that reads like this, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The image of God is stamped on humanity. Look around, look at the people next to you, in front of you, behind you, and believe it or not, the image of God is stamped on them. Look at your neighbors. Look at the people you like and dislike. The image of God is imprinted, stamped on them. Say to someone next to you, the image of God, I see it imprinted on you. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So give to God ourselves all that we have, all that we are. Fast forward a few verses in Mark's gospel to the passage that we actually read and talked about last week where Jesus, quoting the Old Testament, says, give to God, love God, give to God all that you have, all, the, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, Give it all to him. It belongs to him. It is for his glory. It is for his purposes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God all, all that bears his image, all that reflects his glory. Pay your taxes. Show appropriate respect to civil governments. But know that in the big picture and in the end, everything belongs to God, and especially everyone belongs to God and we exist for God's glory. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. 
And so among other things, this passage warns us about joining a political party, a specific political party or track or way or ideology in our world today. Rewind to Jesus' time. He calls to himself six fishermen, several zealots, rebels, revolutionaries, a tax collector, and one or two people from the upper crust of their society. From all of these different groups, Jesus recruits, not from one political party. We think of them all as one. They all drove one accord, right? They all fit into one. The differences in Jesus' just original 12 were incredibly diverse, not just in their vocations, but in their backgrounds and in their politics. This passage calls us to recognize that there's not one political party to which one must belong, not for Christians, not for anyone. And so every Christian needs to navigate the idiosyncrasies of that sort of discussion for themselves. Next, what belongs to God is God's, and everything that bears his image belongs to God. That's us. And by extension, it includes everything that belongs to us, which is something for us to think about on Commitment Sunday. We are faced with two different rulers, rulers of the civil world and rulers of the kingdom of God, God and country. Those things sometimes get enmeshed with each other and blended together. We must be careful when we talk about these things, when we think about these things, when we live out these two very different, sometimes competing, sometimes enmeshed realities. I would also say that a Christian response to this passage includes gratitude, recognizing all that we get from Caesar all that we get from our government, all that we get from our taxes. And so among Christians, there ought to be, at a minimum, a sort of gratitude for what we get when we pay our taxes, when we enjoy the benefits of this land. The Jews derived benefits from infrastructure and roads and other things. How many of us give thanks when we write that check, when we file our tax return? How many of us do that? I've been trying to practice that. Because God really has blessed us abundantly. Most of us have the taxes to pay that we owe. And so there are a number of things and ways that we can learn from this passage more than just the simplistic or the superficial. Jesus rejects violence as an alternative. The opponents fully expected such a zealous prophet as Jesus that he would expose seditionist tendencies when they posed their question. They mistook Jesus the Galilean for another revolutionary, G Judas the Galilean. Violent revolution, which could have been, by extension, part of Jesus' response, is never a part of Jesus' way. Jesus rejects militant nationalism, but does not propose that his followers drop out completely from society. He doesn't tell them to have nothing to do with government, nor does he invite them to withdraw to some desert stronghold like the Qumran community did around the Dead Sea. We as Christians may hold citizenship in heaven, but that doesn't exempt us from being exemplary citizens here on earth. Jesus doesn't call us to disengage from our world, nor does he call us to confer upon our world special status that allows us to escape 
our obligations. Jesus' statement limits what one owes the government. He answer, his answer subverts the pretensions of pagan rulers. There is another Lord over them and their idolatrous coins are worthless in God's realm. We owe to God all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The early Christians also adopted a relatively positive and in some ways surprisingly positive understanding of and perspective on government. See Romans 13, 1 Timothy, Titus as examples on that. They advocated submission to the government, but not because of any reverence for Caesar. When one pays taxes to Caesar, one does so out of obedience to Jesus' command, to Jesus' command, and not out of reverence for any earthly ruler. We must obey God rather than men. We have a king, and his name is Jesus, which is a part of what made the Christian faith in its early years so incredibly revolutionary. You know that the first affirmation of faith of the, of the Christian people was, Jesus is Lord. That's it. Jesus is Lord. Over and against the message of the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord. We live in a different reality. And finally, this passage warns us against a danger we face in our society, namely the development slowly, subtly, and subversively of civil religion, of American civil religion, of the blending together of the Christian faith and the way of Jesus, of Christianity and of Americanism. And not just in America, but throughout history, beginning with Constantine in the early 300s, this, more than anything else, has probably been the Christian faith's downfall at different points. When we've confused one for the other, laid one on top of the other, allowed the state to be run by the church or the church to be run by the state. We don't have time for it, but you can do a survey yourself. In your mind of Western history and see all of the places, times, all the way up until today in the United States about the ways in which that has compromised the gospel and a kingdom that is coming. And so as Christians, we live with great respect for the state and yet realize that the state is not our great authority. Rather, as Mark says throughout his gospel, all authority belongs to Jesus. All authority belongs to Jesus. He continually shows Jesus to be the authoritative one. And so uh, we pledge, go ahead and pledge your allegiance to a flag to the flag of the nation to which you belong, but such a pledge of allegiance must always be a distant, distant second to our allegiance to Jesus. Pledge your allegiance to the flag or to a flag, but such a pledge must always be distinct from and secondary to one's allegiance to Jesus. The church must not bow to the state. The kingdom of God is not subject to the kingdoms of our world. This line of interpretation should not be allowed to suggest that money belongs solely to the state while persons belong solely to God. Any division into two non-intersecting realms of finance and faith or church and state that disbars God from the dimension of our life or excludes our civic responsibility from our obedience to God misunderstands the teaching of Jesus. 
He calls us as followers of him, followers of his way to be actively involved in our world, in our government, in our civic organizations, in everything that's out there, but not ultimately primarily subject to any of that. And so the church, in as much as we have a voice, must deter politicians from girding their policies and programs with divine authority, something that happens more and more in our world. Or branding their opponents as inherently evil or sinful, the church must be far enough removed from the political machines of our day to allow the church and the voice of Jesus in the scriptures to always speak prophetically. He is the king. We were bought with a price. Our allegiance is to him. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's to give to God the things that are God's. Let's pray. Help us, God, to carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully think about and weigh these sometimes competing allegiances. We're grateful for the nation in which we live, the state, the county, the city, for government officials of all sorts. Help us to hold them in appropriate regard. Make us, even if we disagree about certain taxes, fees, make us grateful for the benefits thereof. May we always be bowed down before you as the one true king, as the Lord of all, as the one to whom all things belong, as the one through whom all things came, as the one for whom all things exist. Help us to be bowed down before you, humbly listening, generously giving, holding things with care and releasing as you lead. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your tender kindness to each of us. In Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.